apart. This morning I want to ask you to think to yourself, what comes to mind when you hear the words, King Jesus? Just let that ruminate in your head a little bit. What comes to mind when you hear those words uttered, King Jesus? Now, not only what comes to mind, but what is felt in your heart. And, and, and examine your life and, and think, it does, what you're thinking right now, what you're feeling right now, hopefully it's God-honoring, does your life match that feeling? Does your my, your life match what you're thinking about when you hear the words King Jesus? Does it declare that there is power in His name? That He is the one who saves? That He is the one that has changed our life? That He is the one that has woke us up? What comes to mind when you think of the words King Jesus? I think sometimes we as the church, we, when I look at my life as one of the church, I won't just put a blank indictment out on the church, but when I look at my life and I look at where I've been and, I, and serving in various places and, and, and hearing other people's stories where they serve, I think one of the things that we hold dear as a church is a high honor of the name of King Jesus. But also one of the things that is very heavy and a burden within the church is not living in light of those words, King Jesus. That while we want to honor Him and want to hold Him dear, we sometimes don't lift that burden up. We don't really carry that cross. We don't really demonstrate that name. And we don't really show that power to the world. Would you agree that there's power in the name of Jesus? Yeah, I hear amens. Hey, it's a Baptist church. We got amens on a Sunday. I tell you, that's a good thing. By the way, you can throw a few more in there if you have some of the things that you want to honor the Lord with. Um, it helps a preacher out, by the way. Um, but here's the thing. If we say we want to hold dear and honor the name of Jesus and yet we don't live it out, what we're doing is we're giving people a diet form of Jesus. A, a, a miniature figurine. Of, of this king who is mighty beyond compare. We're living out a, a minuscule, mediocre portion of the faith that God has passed on to us. And because of it, there's no true demonstration of power. Now, I don't mean wielding power as in wielding our status. I don't mean power as in having some political clout. I mean power that comes from the one and only Jesus. And it's alive and in display. Here's a question. Do you think mankind actually understands authentic power? We see powerful stuff. In fact, we're amused with it. Sometimes we're terrified by it, but we're amused with it. How many of you, I, I went to back of the bricks, were really excited to find out how much horsepower the vehicle had. I know some of you were more excited than others because yours had more horsepower than others. And some of you were not less excited. Sorry, buddy. But we want to know how much power whenever a new car comes out. Man, do you see the amount of horsepower that has? That's awesome. And we think about power when we look at our bills. I use this much power, somebody turn off a light bulb. You don't have to run the AC like that. We're enamored with power. 
this morning on the news. There's some today that have asked me questions. What are my thoughts on this nation that now says that they have the ability to have a hydrogen bomb? They have a demonstration of power that is terrifying. What are my thoughts on that? You see, we are enamored with power, but we really don't understand authentic power. We understand limited power in some ways. We know how to limit the amount of power we use or, or, or use more of that. We know how to unleash some limited amounts of power. But when it comes to unlimited, authentic God power, mankind doesn't really understand that. I would venture to say that sometimes we as disciples don't understand that. We don't. We, we as a church, we don't always understand God's authentic power and His authority. And so today we're going to look at this strange power, this unlimited, awesome power that King Jesus holds and how it awakens us in our life to something new. I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to continue our journey through Corinthians talking about being awakened. I'm going to ask you to stand with us as we honor this powerful King Jesus by the reading of His Word. It's going to be behind me. If you have one of our pew Bibles, it's page 10, 11 in the version I'm reading. But once again, it'll be behind me. I encourage you to follow on whatever copy of God's Word that you have, whether print or electronic. But this is what it says. Paul goes on to write in his letter to the church at Corinth, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who were called, both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Lord Jesus, help us to learn from Your Word today together, and may it honor You, King Jesus, who is mighty in power, and may you demonstrate that in our lives as we hear, as our eyes are open, as we trust and obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So this is a unique portion in the beginning of Paul's letter. And you may think, what in the world is going on here? Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, a little bit about the author. He was this man who was an incredibly gifted, intellectual Pharisee from a very high pedigree who had lots of degrees on his wall. He was very smart, very intelligent, very bold, and very arrogant. But in all of that, he did want to honor the Lord because he was fearful of this little group of what were once Jewish people now following this Jesus who they claimed to be the risen Messiah. And he wanted to exterminate such a, a view because there was no way possible that he could believe that this Jesus was indeed the Messiah. We'll get to that in a minute. 
But on a road to Damascus one day in Acts chapter 9, uh, according to the historical accounts, he had an encounter with this risen Christ and it transformed him and it awakened something in him. Not only was his life transformed by grace, but his life was awakened to a mission that was like no other. And Paul holds this kind of position as one of the most transformative, active missionaries ever. Ever. And so he writes this letter around A.D. 56 to a church that he had helped found. To one of the places he had been on a mission. And he's writing this church as the author, but he's writing to an audience because he's hearing about their lack of wisdom. He's hearing about their divisions and difficulties. He's hearing about their lack of devotion and their apathy to doctrine, to the teaching of the Word. And he's writing them to show that Jesus has ownership over every detail of their lives. That's a very stark truth that sometimes hits us today because when we talk about someone having ownership of a person, automatically red flags come up. Nobody can own somebody. That's, you know, our view, especially in, in America, that's a, that's a high red flag. But we're not talking about chattel slavery. We're not talking about abuse. We're not talking about Jesus looking at mankind as less than they are. He created them, He loved them, and He died to save them. That's not the type of slavery that we're trying to look at in history. This is ownership of God who created man and who saved that man. But what does that mean when we apply that in our life? What does it mean when we look at this? And what Paul is simply writing here, he says, there is more power in simply the Word or message and proclamation of the cross than anything else that could possibly be manufactured by man. All that you know of power does not compare to the power that is found in the very mention of the Word of the cross. That's a pretty huge statement. That would be really crazy in our day for someone to say that, but it's true. And it would be just as crazy in that day for to say it, even though it's true. Because Paul's writing to a church that had lived in the Roman Empire. They'd seen this incredible mechanized machine of military might, of governmental rule. And he's saying there's more power in the very mention of the cross than all this that we see. Paul would adamantly say yes. And the Scriptures preserved to us to say yes. But do we understand it? So let's look at the Scriptures and ask, what do they teach us about this often misunderstood power of God and the message of His cross? Well, let's look at these lessons. If we're going to be taught, I don't know about you, but whenever I was getting up for school, I had to go there for lessons. If I was going to be taught something, I had to learn a lesson. You're with me. All right, good, good. I just want to make sure you're awake because you know, it would be really silly for me to say this, this whole series is awakened and you'd like be like... You know, that just, that just wouldn't be copacetic. So... Um, Good, you're awake with me. So I would wake up in the morning and I would get prepared and I would get ready for the bus and I'd wait for Miss Towhill. Yes, that was her name, Miss Towhill. Uh, if she knew I was making fun of her name, she'd probably give me the boot. Boo, poor joke, I know. But anyways, she would drive the bus and she was also my 8th grade science teacher. And um, when I would go in her class, I always loved it because she's my bus driver and she's also my science teacher. And today I get to learn less about science. I loved science. Still do. I'm a nerd. It's okay. This is the person that you called. It's all right. It's not going to be a bad thing. But if we're going to learn lessons from the Scripture, it's got to teach us something. And the first lesson is this. Humanity thinks in the terms of earthly assumptions. But what God brings us is supernatural revelation. And they can come together, but they are going to be, uh, one's going to reveal more about the other. You see, we think in terms of earthly assumptions. We have a very limited point of view. 
obviously. We've only been to one other globe in outer space and set foot on it. Unless you're a conspiracy theorist and you think it was all set up in a movie uh, studio in California. But we're not debating that today. But here's the thing. Mankind has only made it that far out. We've not been any further out. We've got telescopes that look further out. But we only have one limited perspective. We can only see from where we are. And we can only look back to where we've been. We can't look ahead. We can't see what's coming other than what God has told us. But in all of that limited perspective, we make some really bold assumptions. We make some really bold statements as if those are certainties of all truth, even though we are very limited in what we can see and what we can know. But we base a lot of our lives on that. Living in assumptions. But what God plans to do, what God does, is He doesn't leave us in what we assume. He says, I don't want to leave you in what you can just assume and in your limited perspective. I want to show you something greater. And why would He not? He's the God who has power to show us something greater. He is the God that has the power to do something more than we could possibly imagine. And so He looks at finite man, the ones He's created, the ones who are lost in sin, the ones who are struggling all that they can to figure it all out. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you out. As a loving God who has the power, I'm going to make a declaration like any you've ever known. I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to provide for that promise. And so Paul shares about God bringing a supernatural... Uh, revelation that just basically confounds all of our earthly presuppositions. All of our earthly thoughts of what this is what it's meant to be like. And he even clues us in on some things about how we live our life by quoting the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. And in doing so, he's sharing that what's happening in this day and what's happening in this day and what was happening in those days is not different. That the day which we live in is not just something that's different generationally. It's not just something different culturally or historically or social phenomenon. It's not what it is. This is the way mankind has always been. And this is what God speaks to it. He says, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm going to set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. That doesn't mean God's saying, I'm looking to make the world idiots. That's not what the Bible is teaching us here when you look at the full context of Scripture. But what He is saying is that mere human wisdom, if all you're depending on is what you could possibly see and what you've possibly known, you're going to miss out. Because mere human wisdom is bound to fail. Because it's limited. And what it is, is just an attempt to figure everything out, to place it neatly in a confined little box, and then to wield control of the box. To say, I know it all. It's all in this box. I have it. You can see it. I know what's all going on in the box. But here's the problem. We live in the box. We don't know what's outside the box. For all its wisdom, the world has never really found God on their own. They haven't. And we are people that just like are blindly groping after a truth. Some solid foundation. And we want God. Even though sometimes we don't know we want God. And our search for wisdom and revealed truth was designed by God to begin with. This whole thing was designed by God to begin with. That we would search after something greater than ourselves. That we would look to someone who could lead us in the way. And it was a way of showing mankind that we 
left to ourselves, we're helpless. I know nobody wants to come to church and hear that. Nobody wants to be told, hey, you know what? Left to your own devices, you're just helpless. To be called helpless means to mean you're hopeless. What are we to do with that? How am I to, how am I to reconcile that? Well, the Bible says that this is where God starts. He, he takes these broken pieces, and then when we see Him, you see the artist began bringing this beautiful mosaic together, this beautiful piece of art. and says when we see Him, we're prepared to receive the One who is from God, the One who is the way to God, and the One who is God. You see, we want to be able to put everything neatly in a box. But the trouble is, we don't really know how to do that. And if we're attempting to do that, we're just living by our own assumptions. And God has given us His Word. God has made this message known to us of His promise and His provision so that we would not walk around just living in assumptions, just trying to figure it out. He's saying, come on, I love you this much. And I demonstrated my power to you this much so that you don't have to live like that. I want you to know what it means to truly live, to truly know me, and to be transformed by my power. What is this powerful supernatural revelation? Well, you look at through some of the sermons in the book of Acts, you'll see some of these. They're pretty bold claims, but they're not really that big of claims that we would say, that is mind-boggling. I mean, you're here in church. Many of you have grown up in church, so you've probably heard some of these claims before. But these are the simple yet profound and powerful claims that come from God. This supernatural revelation is that there is a great promise from God. And that now, because of Jesus, we live in the great promised time of God. Wild, I know. Probably never heard that before. That you live in the time fulfilled by God's promises. Another claim, that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that promise has been provided for. I know it's a wild claim, but that's the message of the Bible. That's a supernatural revelation. It's the claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies, that He's the promised Messiah. It's the claim that this same Jesus was risen, is still risen, and was one day returning as the risen Lord. And that He will always be. It is the urgent claim that all men must repent and receive the promised gift of salvation through Christ and the filling of their lives with God Himself through the Holy Spirit. Those are very simple messages. Most of us would say, you know what, I know that preacher. I know that simple message. But do you know that there's power in that message? Do you know there's power in it? That, that message itself, those were the messages that saved you. That's the message that transforms a soul. It's power. Lesson number two. When we think about how Paul says that for, for some of people, that this is a stumbling block. This is foolishness. If this is the powerful, true revelation of God, why do so many reject this message? I've been seeing floating around on Facebook this image. And... Um, it talks about secular songs. It says the fact that mankind has so many songs speaking about a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven, it must make men realize it must be a, um, a view of what the traffic's going to look like between the two. We are scared by the fact that this is true. And yet when the Bible says, I provided this news for all, how is it some people choose 
to go the wide way and the broad way that leads to destruction instead of the narrow way that goes to heaven. How is that possible that someone could see this and be like, I just can't get over this. This is a stumbling block for me. Or this is foolishness. Well, the second lesson is this, that humanity thinks in terms of superficial help. But God brings us supernatural redemption. Man thinks in times of superficial help. Many do not see faith in Christ. They don't see that it's about supernatural redemption. Because they're not looking for that. They're merely looking for some superficial help. They look at their life and say, you know, the intent of my heart seems pretty good. The intent of my heart looks pretty good. I seem to have a good head on my shoulders, but I've got these rough edges on the side. If, if, if those would just be sanded and smoothed, I would be good. And apparently Paul is speaking to this to the church at Corinth who has gotten off kilter and says, you know, they're, they feel like they're maybe not effective in how they're demonstrating the message to both Greeks and the Jews. And Paul is saying, there are going to be those that believe, but there are going to be some that are going to see this as stumbling blocks, as foolishness, because all they're looking for is superficial help. And that is the same place we find ourselves today. But what Christ has done is not just superficial help. It's not just really to sand the surface. It's not really just to make everything look smooth and polished. Although sometimes we as Christians, we want that to be the image. What Christ does provides for something greater, for something deeper, for the true need of redemption. And make no mistake, redemption is necessary. Because redemption is the only thing that saves. But redemption is costly. It's very costly. And what Jesus has done doesn't make sense to many because they don't understand the necessity and the costliness of redemption. Paul is writing for the Jewish people, it's a stumbling block. That's the words he uses. Why? Because they cannot believe that God's chosen one would take the curse and the brutality of death on a cross. In fact, they take a verse out of, of, of Deuteronomy. And Paul speaks about this verse in Galatians. But it says that, it says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. So they cannot believe that the one who was cursed for our sins could be the Messiah. Yes, he was cursed for our sins, but he overcame the death of our, for our sins. Somehow they missed the message of Isaiah 53. Jewish people, Jewish boys, when they're raised, they're taught to memorize the first five books of the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're taught to remember that by the time they're 12. The entire thing. And if they're really good at it, and they have a little bit of a smart brain on their shoulder, and people say, hey, you might want to you know, take a leg up and follow after a rabbi, they'll memorize all of the Psalms and the Prophets. But if they are kind of like, alright, you've got a handle on the, the memorization, but I think you should go and take on the family trade, they do that. But here's the thing. Many don't ever get to the Psalms and the Prophets because they're just so focused on the Torah. They don't miss out on the promise of the suffering servant that would be crushed for our iniquities, that would be bruised for our transgressions, that the chastisement for our souls was laid upon Him. They don't see that. And instead, what they want is not to fulfill the prophecy, but they want signs that change their circumstance. I think this is actually pretty relevant today. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day, 
and the Jews that would live in Paul's day, which was, you know, the, his, his writings are just in the two couple decades right after Jesus. They were living just within a hundred years of what was known as the Maccabean period. Now, if you're in the Catholic Church, you'll see a book of First and Second Maccabees. If you study Jewish history or anything like that, you'll hear about the Maccabean period. It's this period of about 115 years, which the state of Israel was self-ruled. They were their own government. They were their own authority. They were their own monarchy. And it was like the days of David had come back to the kingdom. It was their golden age after all that they'd gone through with Babylon, after all they'd faced with Persia, after all they'd faced with the Greeks, they now had this time. And they had leaders that helped revolt against the, Jew, the, the Greek people of the day and led them. But then came the Roman generals. And they conquered the lands again, and now they were under empire rule. And so what the Jewish people were looking for when they were looking for a Messiah is someone to bring back those glory days. To bring about that revolt, to change and take us back to there, and to keep us there. And because of that, there were many would-be false hopes that arose. There was a man named Thutis that came up, and he led 3,000 people into the Jordan River. And he was going to show them the sign. He was going to make the Jordan River split wide open again and cross over. Didn't happen. But he was, he was enough to convince thousands of people to follow him out of the desert to see it. There was another man that led 3,000 people to the Mount of Olives. He was from Egypt. And people were looking for that. They were looking for that miracle, that circumstance, that moment. And if, they can, if this can happen, then I will follow. You see, Jesus was an incredible miracle worker and He had incredible rabbi teachings that were very different from what they had heard in the day. But when they came to him and wanted to anoint him as their king to lead this revolt, what they saw instead was a servant who was obedient, obedient to the point of death and death on the cross, as Philippians 2 tells us. And that they just couldn't let that go. They didn't, they didn't like the fact that what they found in Jesus, instead of a celebrity spectacular, they found a meek and lowly servant who was willing to go to the cross. That left a stumbling block. And I wonder today, how many people, that's what they're waiting for. If you can just put the right circumstances in place and all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed, then I'll believe in this Jesus. And that's what I'm waiting for. Now here's the bad news about that. One day all the I's are going to be dotted. One day all the T's are going to be crossed. And everything that God has spoken about will come, will happen. But on that day it will be too late. On that day when death finds the soul that is not trusting Jesus, it is too late. They will bow the knee, but they won't find the salvation of the King. On that day when He returns... He's going to come back in His full glory and justice after this incredible age of grace in which the message was proclaimed. And those that were waiting for all those signs to happen, all those circumstances to line up, and for it to benefit them, they're going to be mistaken and, and say, He is the King, but He's going to say, You may call Me Lord, but I never knew You. Depart from Me. Don't let that be a stumbling block. And as you declare the message to others, Help them be aware 
that these circumstantial things, these looking for these signs is folly. What you need to look to is the only sign that matters. What Jesus did on the cross and how He overcame it. That is more than enough. That is the power that saves. For the Greeks, this was foolishness. Why was it foolishness to the Greeks? The intellectuals of the day, they had many deities. In fact, when Paul wrote, went through the city of Athens, he noticed that there was a, a, a monument, a memorial to the unknown God in case they had missed out one. They had a very high view of spirituality. The problem is, every one of their deities, they viewed with a form of apathia. That the gods were too high and lofty to care about what went on in the, the schemes of man, in the souls of men. It was too distant of a span for them to address. And so the idea of Jesus coming in the incarnation, not so that He could just sow His wild oats or do something that the Greek gods of mythology had done, but to die for mankind, this was incredibly beyond their scope of thought that God would do this, that He would stoop so low to do this. They also will look for wise turning the phrase. Their wisdom came in how you could turn a word to make it sound really good. Now, I prefer my puns intended. I do. I love them. I love a good pun. But here's the thing. Sometimes it does not take the most sophisticated, clever, spelled out message in the world to share the message of the cross. And if that's what you're waiting for, that's what you're looking for. You could miss out on the message by just looking for the messenger. Too many people want to find a polished messenger today and don't really care about the message. We need to care more about the message than the messenger. If the message is there, God will help the messenger. That includes you and me. Whenever they heard the message of the Savior from heaven who was compassionate and willing to die and conquer death, this demonstrated for the Greeks something that was very hard for them to swallow. That out of all their assumptions, out of all their degrees, out of all their life and experience, this message of a God that would die for His creation and rise again and has ultimate authority, what it means is when they look at their box, and they look at him, and they look back at their box, and they look at him. It's hard to swallow. I don't got that much power. It's hard to swallow when you look at the wisdom of God, and you look at our wisdom in our box, and you look back at the wisdom of God and the wisdom in our box, and say, wow, I'm really not as smart as I thought I am. That something about God's wisdom, something about God's power is greater than we can possibly imagine. And we need to be taught this. We need to be taught the third lesson is that humanity thinks in terms of useless information, but God brings us supernatural restoration. What Paul is pointing to here in verses 21 through 25, when he's sharing about how the stumbling block and the foolishness of the Jews and the Greeks, what is really happening here is, is this information being passed is not meant to be something that you can win a trivia game at. I have this old board game in my house. Um, Somewhere. I'm not really sure exactly where right now. I think it's in my basement in a box. But um, it's called Bible Trivia. It's in a big blue box. The blue box is about the same size as the original Trivial Pursuit games. Anybody remember the original Trivial Pursuit games? All right, here's another question. Let's see how many super Christians are in here. How many of you have that Bible Trivia game? 
All right, I see some super Christians in here. All right, awesome. Super Christians had the Bible truth again in my basement. All right, so here's the thing. This Bible trivia game would be brought out and the moves were the regular like little sorry uh, tokens that you use to kind of move uh, up rainbows, you know, because it was the 60s and 70s and 80s, so, you know, rainbows. Anyways, but if you had a lot of built-up information about the Bible, like, I don't want to say it's useless information because, you know, it would be bad for a preacher to say, if you know stuff about the Bible, it's useless. But if you had a lot of information about the Bible... You could probably do very well in that game. I did all right. I, as a college student, I was like, yeah, yeah, I know the, I know the grandson of King Saul's Mephibosheth. Move that piece up two places, please. That was me. But here's the thing. You can come to church, and you can so easily turn this, even though it was never intended to be this, you can turn this into useless Trivial information. That is all about trivia, but is lacked in transformation. And what Jesus says is that it is always useful because what it's useful for, what it's profitable for, is for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for equipping the man of God to be adequately equipped for every good work. That there's training and righteousness about it. So here's the thing. When you talk about the message of the cross and what we're talking about with Jesus, it's not about learning the right acrostic. It's not about learning the right Bible verses that you can have just useless information. It's about sharing with the world that because of what Jesus did on the cross, there is now supernatural restoration in my life. That I have a relationship with God and that makes all the difference. I've seen the message of the cross that I was a sinner standing before a holy God and He showed mercy on me by 2,000 years ago sending His Son on the cross to die for me, leaving me a personal responsibility to choose what will I do with Jesus to obey Him and trust in Him and be saved and have spend eternity with Him and have life transformed today or to reject Him, to disobey Walk away and look at church as just something else useless in my life. That I am awakened to the understanding of His signs. That I'm not looking for God to spend my circumstances to my benefit. That's not what Christianity is about. I look at what God has already done, thus proving, thus demonstrating. That's the sign that God could love a sinner. and demonstrates His love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the understanding of His signs. That we see the display of His character. That yes, God is incredibly powerful. There is power in the name of of King Jesus that should leave us with a fear of God. That's a natural thing. But there's also mercy in the demonstration of His character that shows that while He is ultimate in power, He is also ultimate in passion and love for us. That there's a sharing of His wisdom that while I could try to live my life on earthly assumptions, that I could try to live my life on useless information, I could try to live my life with some superficial help, just trying to sand the spots to make it look good. But what I need is the wisdom of God being shared in my life so I'll know how to live. The Word of the cross has the power to do something otherwise impossible on our own. It has the power to save. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to us who are being saved. 
Paul is clearly reminding the Corinth church that if you miss out on this, you miss out on everything. That if you're attempting to find power in any other way, in another lifestyle, in another teaching, you are missing out. And what you need is the Gospel. So how does this apply as we wrap up today? We must live in a way that sees Scripture as supernatural revelation. Now what I mean by that is not merely, yeah, Brother Jerome, I, I acknowledge that. No, I mean living in such a way that daily we're spending time in God's Word realizing that God supernaturally provided this for us. That we are adequately studying it. That we are finding ourselves being taught by faithful Bible teachers. And that we are passing on that knowledge to our young ones because we believe it's supernatural revelation that needs to be for us and for them. And not only those close to us, but those we encounter in our daily lives, somehow sharing the message of the cross. We must live in a way that sees the cross as supernatural redemption. That we don't try to make the the message of the Gospel super complex. That we should share, you know what? This is it. God is big. And sin is bad. And I can try to do things my own way, but it won't get me anywhere. But Jesus did things His way. And because of what He provided, I can be saved. And I know what He's done for me. We try to overcomplex the message. And what we end up doing by adding all these additives is we make a diet version of the cross. Think about this. Some of the best sodas I've ever had have the fewest ingredients. And they're usually very natural and all that kind of stuff. But when I pull up a can of diet soda, and I know some diet sodas are very addictive and they're very tasty, but I look at all the ingredients and I'm like, but it's not the real thing. Here's the thing. Sometimes we overcomplex things and we demonstrate and we decorate our lives with crosses and polish them up. As if we know it, it has, a, 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 it has a, a, a transformation in our life. But we're not really demonstrating it. We're just giving people substitutes. Go to church. Do good morals and deeds. Love people the right way. Instead of sharing with them what Jesus has done for them. Let's not give people a diet version of the cross. Let's talk about the redemption and what it means for us. And let's live in a way that demonstrates supernatural restoration. Now that what Christ has done this in my life, I am changed. And I want to demonstrate that in my attitude in my home. I want to demonstrate that in my language at work. I want to demonstrate that in my devotion to God's Word and, and living that out wherever I am. Because God's power was strong enough to save me. Now I'm going to do everything in my power to live for His. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today I just ask that You would help us to um, just to respond to who You are. In this time of invitation, God, demonstrate Your power and help us to be obedient to it. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to ask every eye Stay closed, never head to stay bowed. And what I'm going to ask you in this moment is, is there a decision that you need to make in trusting Jesus? 
Is there a decision that you need to make in trusting Jesus? When I ask that question at the beginning of the sermon, what comes to mind when you think King Jesus? Some of you may have thought, someone I wish I knew. And today, God is providing that opportunity for you to know this Jesus. Not just know about Him, not just know facts about Him, but to know Him by placing your faith in Him and being saved. Some of you, when I said that word, King Jesus, you may be saying, someone I should live better for. Because you know who He is. You know what He's done. You know how He's saved. But you realize and you recognize something has to be addressed in our life if we're going to live for this King Jesus. Today, during this invitation, the music's going to play. And I'm just going to be up here at the front. And if God is impressing on your heart a decision that you need to make, whether it's trusting Jesus for salvation for the first time, or somehow living for Him in a, in a more pleasing way as a disciple. I'm going to be up here to help counsel, and as the music plays, you come and respond as God would lead.